names are Teresa and Gumby. Welcome to Escaping Society. We wrote our own songs so we wouldn't have to pay for anyone else's copyright infringement. Welcome to Escaping Society. This is episode 52, Native Literacy Stories. I'm Gumby. I'm Teresa. And we are in the occupied lands of the Eno and Okanichi, among other peoples, um, and the Carolina Parakeet, the Red Wolf, and even the Buffalo used to live here. Um, and this land is now called by the colonizers Durham, Bahama specifically. Um, so... Native literacy stories. Um, mostly we're going to be talking about tracking. And um, I guess my first thought that I want to explore with that is, I can't remember which book. I think maybe it was a story of B, but I remember Daniel Quinn brings up, um, you know, he asked somebody in the book, at what point did we become we? You know, evolutionarily speaking, we share common ancestors with all these different creatures. And so you go far enough back and you would see our ancestor and it would be what you would call an animal, you know, as apart from a human, you know. So he explores what is this transition that happened where something that we would not identify as human as one of our ancestors over, of course, a long period of time became something that we point at and say, ah, that, that, that's humanoid, that I can see the human in that creature. Um, and he suggested it might be tracking, which I found really interesting because I was already really into tracking by the time I read that. So, you know, he talks about how when we started tracking, that's when we took on this unique way of interpreting the world. Um, other animals, you know, like the dog family, they can follow a scent um, and they can just it's like a, a trail to them on a, on a plane that's hard for us to imagine that they can just follow the scent trail we don't have that ability. We had to use our eyes. We had to look at clues and we had to interpret these clues and extract a story from them. Um, so it's these stories. When I, when I say tracking now, what tracking means to me is stories, extracting stories. So through these stories, we develop ways to uh, communicate these stories with each other. So that might be the beginnings of, of language, you know, ways to, to express ourselves and to communicate, you know, like, here's where a buffalo went. Buffalo's going this way. I think it's a female, maybe two years old. And um, I th I'm going to go ahead and try to track this buffalo and hunt this buffalo, for instance. So just consider that, you know, I, I, that tracking itself, we might be, that, that started us on our unique path of what we would call the human being. Um, I chose the word, the words native literacy for this episode because when we say literacy in our culture, we talk about someone being illiterate, and that means they can't read. Um, and so that would apply to a lot of people in indigenous tribes, you know, before our culture intervenes. They would be an illiterate people. And that's got a negative connotation. What, what we mean by that usually is ignorant, even unintelligent. But what we call reading is just what we write. Um, I've heard David Abram, mm -hmm. singular, David Abram described that as kind of masturbatory. You know, it's like it's a it's a, a closed loop. We write stuff and then we read stuff. And so all we're doing is kind of like communicating to ourselves as, as a human animal, as the human species. It's almost like we're just talking to ourselves constantly, reinforcing what we think about the world, not what the world is actually telling us. So when I say native literacy, I'm talking about um, an ability to read stories that weren't written by humans. Um, you know, and that's common to all cultures, the, the beginnings of all cultures, all of our ancestors. If you go far enough back, you find what I'm describing, this native literacy, um, these stories. So why tracking? You know, why would we track? You got any thoughts you want to share on that, Teresa? Well, I'll share that I I don't really have 
a lot of experience in tracking um, per se. But when I met Gumby and he was telling me about these groups that he was trying to get started and like sharing all this information, I was excited about learning tracking because, and this is pertinent to your question, I felt like it was one of the keys at least to unlocking the potential of your mind. Because even though I don't necessarily, or at that time I didn't think like, oh, I'm going to go hunting or I need to, you know, be a scout or something like that. I could see the value in being able to take details of the landscape and understand what I'm seeing and how that skill can translate and transfer to so many different aspects of my life. And I'm not a tracker and I'm not a anything like that, a hunter, anything. So just to have that ability to really look, to really listen, to really smell and, and feel, I, I just felt like it was such a gift to even be around somebody that does tracking because I haven't studied it and I've picked up a lot. Mm-hmm. And I like how you say you're not uh, a tracker. It makes me think of something John Young of Wilderness Awareness School once told us. Um, he cautioned us against calling ourselves trackers. He said you demean the whole art if, you know, just because you've learned a couple things about animal sign, then now you're a tracker. Why not elevate it? Tracking is something you aspire to. So I try to remember that. I try to as much as I can say that I'm studying tracking, that I'm practicing tracking. Um, if I ever call myself a tracker, it's just because I've, I've had a brain fart. I'm, I'm being lazy with my language. But uh, keep that in mind, you know, that... By not calling yourself a tracker, by reminding yourself that you are not, in fact, a tracker, you're reminding yourself in a subtle way that the the amount of what you don't know out there is vast compared to that tiny little nugget that maybe you know, and maybe you know something that other people around you don't because we're we're the tracking in our culture is, is atrophied so much. But still, even if you know things other people don't, it's still so small compared to what you don't know yet. It's like a story that keeps unfolding. Mm-hmm. You might know the first 50 chapters of it, but there's like 500 chapters more that you have no idea yet. Mm-hmm. And here's some reasons for tracking. Um, obviously hunting, you know, we think of the hunter and uh, to be a good hunter, it's really good to know like what you're tracking, what is in the, the area, you know, how long ago was it there? Um, details like that that you can pick up from tracking. Trapping, same thing. You know, where are you going to set your trap? You better be able to read the landscape a little bit Um, because especially if you start practicing trapping and you just set it up in random places, yeah, you might get lucky now and then, but you're not going to be a very successful trapper without tracking. Security. Um, Let's say, you know, society falls and we're out there and, you know, you're struggling in this post-apocalyptic world or, you know, even now living out in the woods. Um... It's really handy to know when things have been disturbed around your camp, your Mm. area, when you've had a visitor or an intruder. Um, Maybe they're still there. You know, maybe they're hiding. Maybe it's an ambush. Maybe it's just somebody that was curious. But it's to your benefit to know that now that spot you thought was super secret that nobody's been there, at least one person knows that it's there. These are things that are really important for your security. Um, And we've gotten so complacent and so dependent on our technology, our security systems, police forces, that we tend to ignore important things like that. But that investment in your own security and safety. Ooh, I have a brief story about when we were traveling across the country and got to Northern California. And I was looking at this website that was kind of a... It was like where you could park your van or park your car and sleep overnight and you wouldn't get hassled, and and preferably if it was free. So there was this one place that we went down, 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 uh, dirt road, miles, and we got there. And I mean, it was it was a nice place. It was raining, unfortunately, but uh, when it wasn't raining, we went for a walk and we saw bear scat. Oh, that place, yeah. And. Even though you might have guessed, like, well, there's bears in the area, it was really good to know that there was active bears pooping in that area so that if we did go out for a walk or we let Sherlock, you know, be outside, like, we need to know there are bears. Mm -hmm. And it's not to say that we're going to do anything 
to the bears, but we need to be aware of that for our safety and security. Yeah, and also to respect the, uh, I was about to say the traditions, I'm not sure if that's the appropriate word, but that there are bear there, so we're in their territory, and we need to act a certain way, you know, Mm -hmm. not, I'm going to act differently in bear territory than I am outside of bear territory, and it's not strictly a matter of security, it's also a matter of etiquette, the way I see it. Uh, rescue. You know, I've I've lost animals before, had dogs that, uh, you know, just disappeared one day. And I always wished I was a better tracker. You know, that search and rescue as- aspect, if you're a good enough tracker, to be able to find a lost child, uh, a dog, you know, that I've just had to decide that I'm going to have faith that its destiny played out, that whatever has happened was meant to happen. But that doesn't mean if I wasn't a better tracker, I wouldn't be curious to find out what did happen to learn that story again, that native literacy. There's a story out there that's written across the landscape, etched across the landscape, that I can't read. And that's a frustration, and that makes me want to track. And finally, my favorite reason why to learn tracking is waking up. Um, Tom Brown Jr., whose nickname is The Tracker, um, who runs the Tom Brown's Tracking Nature and Wilderness Survival School. He got to pay you for plugging that place. He really should. Um, <laughs> but I remember him writing on the board, tracking equals awareness. Hmm. So I love that. You know, like if you if you become a, a good tracker, you wake up to your life more. You look for things. You look at the details, the nuances of everything. And I'm going to get more into what specifically is a track in a moment. But for now, that awareness, that's a reason why I want to learn how to track. I want to track plants. I want to track weather. I want to track my life. I want to track the lives of those around me. I want to wake up and pay attention. I want to learn to read. I don't want to be illiterate to the whole world except for books. So I want that native literacy. I want that tracking. Um, One of the things Tom taught was that everything is a track. And I used to uh, teach adult classes on tracking. And again, not that I'm a tracker. I just felt like I had learned enough tools from my teachers. I could pass them on, you know, hopefully help inspire people to for them to seek out more experience and teachers and also kids love teaching kids. Um, But one of the things if I if I was going to get one thing across, it would be this. I'd ask them, what is a track? And get that conversation started. And often, you know, as many of the listeners are probably thinking, a track, the first thing you think of is footprint. Hmm. Maybe when you learn more about tracking, you realize it's animal sign. It could be a scratch on a tree. It could be scat. It could be, you know, scat is poop. It could be a hair. But it's more than that. Everything is a track. I would tell people, any question you ask is a good question. Um, A tracker is someone who asks endless questions. And then... You know, instead of looking for just closing off a question with an answer, what's the next question? How can we go deeper? How can we wonder more? Um, But the only bad question I would tell my students, the one question I didn't want to hear is, is this a track? Because I felt like that was a stupid question. Mm -hmm. Everything is a track. Um, Sometimes when I had a group of teenagers, you know, just to kind of get them (laughs) engaged in what I was saying more, I'd say... You know, what if I had a dirty pair of underwear here? Threw it down on the ground. Um, That's a track. Because that dirty pair of underwear, it's got clues. It's got information. There's a story to be told there, you know? (laughs) Like, how long have I had that pair of underwear? Um, You know, like, (laughs) what kind of control do I have over my bowels, for instance? (laughs) But anyway, you get the idea. You know, anything is a track. I could point to any single thing. Um, and if I can look at it with that, that observation of a tracker, I can extract a story, information, art, and science. I remember Tom Brown looking at the class and saying, Mother Earth does not have goosebumps! And what he was saying is the Earth would be a perfect sphere if it wasn't for tracks. The mountains are a track of something, some Mm. geological thing. The mountains are telling a story of an event that is still unfolding and that started millions of years ago. Um, The grass, the fact that there's a little patch of this kind of grass here and taller grass over there, that is a track. Mm. There's a reason for everything and every dent, every dimple, every mountain, every little molehill is a clue, a story that the tracker has a thirst to read. 
Um, I would also ask people, like, when I say tracking, who do you picture? Like, what are some of your, do you have a, a hero in mind, the, someone that's really good at tracking? And I think most of the time, you know, we're trained to think of tracking like, I think, a Tonto, you know, the Lone Ranger sidekick, you know. He gets down there and he looks at the ground and he says, white man, two horses, two days ride, you know. Mm-hmm. That's tracking. And that is tracking. But I would tell people, some of my favorite trackers are Sherlock Holmes and mm-hmm. Batman. I don't say Batman so much anymore because, uh, you know, I, I've, I've realized that Batman's superpower is white privilege. And, uh, <laughs> you know, just the fact that he's a rich bastard, I'm kind of turned off a little bit to Batman. But he used to be one of my favorite superheroes, and I still respect him because he didn't have any extra powers. He wasn't from another planet or whatever. Other than the physical training, he was a detective. And this was something that, like, in the old Batman comics, he came out, I think, in the 30s, the 40s or the latest, they would call it the detective comics, you know, it, it, the, the word detective was in it because it was he was meant to be sort of like a Sherlock Holmes character. Somebody who looked at clues, looked at details, put the stories together and interpreted events that had happened so he could find the villain, find, you know, whatever needed to be done, just like Sherlock Holmes. So I've got this excerpt here from a Sherlock Holmes story that I really like. You know, there's so many examples of Sherlock Holmes being a tracker. I love when somebody walks into his little apartment on Baker Street and, um, you know, he immediately is like, knows what they're there for. He knows what kind of job they do. He knows uh, if they're happy in their marriage. Just Mm. all kinds of little details because he is so razor sharp. But here's the one example I found in his books of him actually tracking like Tonto, you know, like looking at the ground, looking at footprints. And this is from... Adventures of Sherlock Holmes by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, The Boscombe Valley Mystery. Sherlock Holmes was transformed when he was hot upon such a scent as this. Men who had only known the quiet thinker and logician of Baker Street would have failed to recognize him. His face flushed and darkened. His brows were drawn into two hard lines while his eyes shone out from beneath them with a steely glitter. His face was bent downward, his shoulders bowed, his lips compressed, and the veins stood out like whipcord in his long, sinewy neck. His nostrils seemed to dilate with a purely animal lust for the chase, and his mind was so absolutely concentrated on the matter before him that a question or remark fell unheeded upon his ears, or, at the most, only provoked a quick, impatient snarl and reply. Swiftly and silently he made his way along the track which ran through the meadows, and so by way of the woods to the Boscombe Pool. It was damp, marshy ground, as is all that district, and there were marks of many feet both upon the path and amid the short grass which bounded it on either side. Sometimes Holmes would hurry on, sometimes stop dead, and once he made quite a little detour into the meadow. Lestrade and I walked behind him, the detective indifferent and contemptuous, while I watched my friend with the interest which sprang from the conviction that every one of his actions was directed toward a definite end. The Boscombe Pool, which is a little reed-girt sheet of some water, of water some fifty yards across, is situated at the boundary between the Hatherley Farm and the private park of the wealthy Mr. Turner. Above the woods which lined it upon the farther side, we could see the red jutting pinnacles which marked the site of the rich landowner's dwelling. On the Hatherley side of the pool, the woods grew very thick, and there was a narrow belt of sodden grass twenty paces across between the edge of the trees and the reeds which lined the lake. Lestrade showed us the exact spot at which the body had been found, and indeed, so moist was the ground that I could plainly see the traces which had been left by the fall of the stricken man. Damn wind. To Holmes, as I could see by his eager face and peering eyes, very many other things were to be read upon the trampled grass. He ran round like a dog who was picking up a scent and then turned upon my companion. What did you go into the pool for, he asked. I fished about with a rake. I thought there might be some weapon or other trace, but how on earth? Oh, tut, tut, I have no time. That left foot, that left foot of yours with its inward twist is all over the place. A mole could trace it, and there it vanishes among the reeds. Oh, how simple it would all have been had I been here before they came like a herd of buffalo and wallowed over it. Here is where the party with the lodgekeeper came, and they have covered all tracks for six or eight feet round the body. But here are three separate tracks of the same feet. 
He drew out a lens and lay down upon his waterproof to have a better view, talking all the time rather to himself than to us. There are young McCarthy's feet. Twice he was walking, and once he ran swiftly so that the soles are deeply marked and the heels hardly visible. That bears out his story. He ran when he saw his father on the ground. Then here are the father's feet as he paced up and down. What is this then? It is the butt end of the gun as the son stood listening. And this? Ha ha! What have we here? Tiptoes! Tiptoes! Square, too. Quite unusual boots. They come, they go, they come again. Of course that was for the cloak. Now where did they come from? He ran up and down, sometimes losing, sometimes finding the track, until we were well within the edge of the wood and under the shadow of a great beech, the largest tree in the neighborhood. Hmm. Holmes traced his way to the farther side of this and lay down once more upon his face with a little cry of satisfaction. For a long time he remained there, turning over the leaves and dried sticks, gathering up what seemed to me to be dust into an envelope, and examining with his lens not only the ground, but even the bark of the tree as far as he could reach. A jagged stone was lying among the moss, and this also he carefully examined and retained. Then he followed a pathway through the wood until he came to the high road where all traces were lost. Now, I love that excerpt because um, there's so many elements that seem familiar to me about tracking. For one, the excitement. You know, like um, Doyle goes into a lot of detail to talk about how excited, how focused he was running around looking at these tracks. And when I've been on hot on the trail of something, I know that feeling. You know, when the story starts to come together, it's so exciting when you realize you're reading these tracks. Um, and the clues, the details, the questions, you know, he keeps asking these questions. Where did he go? What does this mean? I feel like Sir Arthur Conan Doyle must have some experience tracking um, because this was such a, a nice, detailed, um, what would I say, description hmm. of tracking. So... For this episode, um, there's so much to say about tracking. I wanted to spend some time talking about my teachers, um, the people who got me started on tracking. And I'll start with Tom Brown Jr. Um, Tom Brown, like I said, he's known as the tracker. And I used to wonder, like, why the tracker? He's he's a, really good at survival. He's good at basketry. He's good at hunting. Why, of all the nicknames, was he known as the tracker? And... Um, over time, I've come to think that maybe he identified with that in particular for the reasons I described, that by being a good tracker, that feeds everything else. The best plant people are good trackers. They, they track plants. They look at the details. They look at the bud scars, tree ID people, it, it just et cetera, et cetera. Um, he was taught from an early age as a young boy by an Alipin Apache elder who he calls uh, Grandfather Stocking Wolf. Um, and he says he tracked so much when he was a kid that he actually got calluses on his chest and belly. Mm. I mean, he laid there for that long looking at tracks. He talks about that grandfather would have him practice by tracking ants across a gravel driveway. And I remember him telling our class, when you can track an ant across a gravel driveway, tracking a human is like tracking a dinosaur through peanut butter. Oh, my God. Um, <laughs> and I love that. He talks about one day, like, watching a track, like he laid there and watched one track all day long and just how all the things he had to go through watching that track, you know, the boredom and then the fascination. And he saw how the track would actually expand and contract, change size and shape with the weather, just the details, the fluidity of, you know, what seems to be so solid until you really take the time to look. Um... One of my favorite things that he said about tracking was he said, an animal is an instrument played by the land, and the land is an instrument played by the animal. And I love that. Um, when you think about that, the implications of that are really profound. An animal is an instrument played by the land. In other words, the land, the topography of the land, what it offers dictates what the animal does, even how it feels, what it thinks. Is it fertile ground? Is it wet? Is there a water source? Is there food? Is it having to climb up? Is it going down? All these things are playing the animal like an instrument. The land is playing the animal. Um, and the land is being shaped by the animal. So as the animals pass and trample the ground and make their trails and eat, um, 
a really good example of this is if you look into the reintroduction of wolves into Yellowstone Park. Um, this is really cool because when the wolves got reintroduced, it had huge, far-reaching effects. The, the wolves changed the behavior of the buffalo there. So the buffalo, instead of just, you know, staying at the waterhole for so long, for instance, would maybe pass quicker over the waterhole. They would act different. Um, and there'd be a different quality to the buffalo herd because, of course, the wolves are there taking out the sick and the old. And because the buffalo, who are trampling the ground, who are eating the plants, are behaving differently, it affects the plants differently. And because the plants hold the soil next to the creek differently, it affects the river. So it just goes on and on until the, the, the presence or absence of wolves changes the whole landscape. The landscape is an instrument played by the animal. It's a beautiful thing when you think about this dance between the, the land and the animals, which of course are one when you just get down to it anyway. Um, when I started, I took my standard course with Tom Brown. That was the, the basic beginning course. And one of the things that they would start you with tracking is he had this like area that they called Vole City. Um, and Vole City was this area they'd take you to on the farm. It used to be in Asbury, New Jersey. And um, it was this little area they'd have you go into and you'd track voles. And I love that, you know, because you think about learning to track, you're going to be tracking deer, something big, maybe, you know, coyotes, something like that. But no, he gets you down there right in the first class tracking voles. You're looking at these little tunnels through the grass. You're looking for anything, any little tiny pock marks that might be their feet, little tiny uh, turds, scat, tiny little vole hairs. And it's fascinating. I remember like that was one of those exercises they had us do that when they called us back in, I was really disappointed. It just kept getting more and more interesting. Um, and yeah, what a great introduction to tracking. Cause once you've spent some time tracking voles, you know, it's like the ant thing, you know, like suddenly the bigger animals, those things are really jumping out at you more. Um, that reminds me of when we had the, uh, mouse problem in the trailer and how <laughs> I saw like little mouse turds and that kind of clued me in as to where I thought maybe our traps should be set up. Mm -hmm. the, uh, the, what, were the, what were they called? What were the traps called? Oh, Paiute Deadfalls. Paiute Deadfalls, yeah. Yeah. And when I first started uh, taking these tracking classes, I was not interested in hunting and trapping at all. I was kind of like thinking I was just going to forage and scavenge. I wanted to be a hobo. I wanted to travel around. So I was interested in like how to make fires, how to make shelters, how to find water. When they started talking about tracking, I just kind of tuned out. I dutifully wrote stuff in my notebook. Um, but I found it kind of boring, you know, aside from the mole, the Vol City thing. I remember the day that I first realized that I had an interest in tracking, and that was when I came back as a volunteer. And some students, there were about three of them, I believe, they came up to me, you know, running up to me, and they were really excited. And they assumed, because I'd taken the class, that I knew how to track. Mm. And so they were like, you're, you're a, a volunteer instructor, right? And I was like, yeah. And they're like, would you come look at this? We just found something really cool in the woods. And like, I was hoping you'd be able to tell us like what it is. And I told them, well, I don't really know much about tracking, but I'm happy to go take a look. And I went over there. And for the first time, I had that experience that I was reading something a human didn't write. I had just absorbed enough through taking these classes over and over, even though I wasn't trying to learn, that suddenly I looked at the ground and I could see it was a kill site. I knew what animal had been killed. I knew what animal had killed it. I knew where he came from. I could see where he left. Um, the more I looked and the more I talked, you know, with these students about what I was seeing, it was kind of like that Sherlock Holmes excerpt. I was just getting more and more excited. I was realizing like, wow, so, you know, here's this and that. And, and I think this is like pretty fresh because, you know, if I put my hand here in this grass, look what happens. And this looks like, you know, it's not too old. And I started realizing I knew all kinds of things about tracking and something clicked. Hmm. I think it was kind of like Daniel Quinn describing, you know, that the tracking being the beginning of the human animal. It's like I was wired for it. It's like something woke up in me that had never had a chance to wake up before. And from that moment on, I was hooked. Um, I still love tracking and I just, I, my passion really inflated after that. So that's Tom Brown Jr. He, he got me started and, uh, yeah, there was a lot I did not understand. He gets in all these pressure releases and stuff, which I'll talk about in another episode. But uh, a lot of that's over my head. But apparently some of it got through because it got me inspired and got me started.
Then there's John Young, who I mentioned, with Wilderness Awareness School. I started taking uh, correspondence courses with him through the mail. There was Kamana Naturalist Training Course, and there was Shikari Tracker Training. And um, both of these correspondence courses were grueling. It involved a whole lot of like research. You had to get these field guides. You're looking up stuff. You're doing sketches. Um, you're doing sketches of skulls. You're doing sketches of signs. You're doing sketches of scat. Uh, you're measuring out tracks. You're going to your sit spot every day, a place you're sitting in the woods and spending like a good half hour there at least at your sit spot. And then every day you're coming and you're journaling and then you make little photocopies and mail it back into the school and they check it out. One of the things that I remember um, about Kamana is John Young talked about this alien test, and this is why I'm using the word native for this episode, native literacy. The alien test, or the tourist test, was another thing that got called, is he started giving these tests to kids at school, and it had to do with, like, plants, birds, you know, like, do you know where the closest water source is to your house? Do you know which way the water flows? Things like that. And it was shocking to have it pointed out how little you knew and these people knew about the land around them. Mm. And, you know, he used that as a platform to start a conversation with them. So aren't we treating this planet like we're tourists or like we're aliens, like we're from another planet just visiting? This is our home. This is the kind of thing that if I went to an indigenous tribe and gave this test, they would... If they humored me at all, they'd find it so simplistic that they they would feel like it was a stupid test. Of course I know this. Every child knows this. And yet every adult in our culture, almost every adult, does not know these things. So, you know, just that inspired this idea of native literacy in me. You know, and he, he talks about the native is a way of living. I don't mean it as in an indigenous person. I think of it as a way of living, and I find that much more empowering because if all you focus on is bloodlines, indigenous people, and you're like me, you're a white person that, hell, your past is all but obliterated. I don't know if it's possible to trace my lineage back to any kind of indigenous ancestral people. So am I just doomed to be a colonist, you know? But when I think in terms of native versus alien, and it's a lifestyle, a way of living— that gives me a path. That gives me something to aspire towards. And so that's the native literacy I'm after. Can I jump in there? This is a Please. little, this is on topic, but off topic for the podcast. So I just wanted to say, we've been spending a lot of time out here, um, partly because of the uh, global pandemic COVID-19 stuff here in 2020. But also, I really like being out here on this land. And lately, Gumby has been improving some paths that this this place that we are, it's like, it's on a road that was basically an abandoned road. Like, all the houses got bulldozed down. Um, there is a new house, but, like, we don't interact with that person. And we have now trails in pretty much every direction north would be the road but there's all these trails that that Gumby's trying to connect and have connected um or has connected and aside from those trails we've been using uh and visiting the creek every day we walk these different trails twice a day and we forage and we observe without even trying you know like I I notice like the the flight path of bald eagles, of great blue herons, of... There's just so many things. And getting back to that native literacy, I feel like I'm still not completely aware of everything on this land, but I feel like we're... uh, We really created that in our own way. Like I said the other day, that that we've kind of done our own sacred hoop with this... with these trails. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely a work in progress, but... And we're just two white people living in a minivan. (laughs) Yeah, and nature is so humbling. I mean, you're constantly reminded of the things you don't know, but I do really appreciate how much we are outside, you know, bathing in the river. Like every, pretty much everything we do is an opportunity to awaken this native literacy I'm describing, you know. And again, 
I'm talking about tracking for this episode, but native literacy is pretty much everything. Even if you're sitting in an office, you know, native literacy is being aware of everything in that office. And everywhere you go, there's life, whether it's mold, whether it's, you know, tracks in the dust of a mouse or a fly, even a house fly. Um, there's something to be tracked. I've heard it said there's no such thing as a bored tracker. Mm-hmm. If you're a tracker, you're not bored. And if you're bored, you're not tracking. <laughs> and one more thing about John Young. Um, I haven't learned directly from him much. I took a class, Art of Mentoring, that tracking was part of it. Um, but most of the classes I describe are from his school, Nature Awareness School in Duval, Washington. Um, and I took this wolf tracking expedition in Idaho that was really extraordinary. Um, we were actually trying not to see the wolves. We didn't want to disturb the wolves. We were tracking them. And wow, there was just so many. We were out there for the week. We were told not to talk about what we were doing, like as we're coming into class or leaving class, because the reintroduction of the wolves around that area is such a controversial issue that you could actually get in like some trouble if you walk into the wrong place and say, oh, I'm tracking the wolves, and they think you're pro-wolf. Um, you know, which was kind of shocking to me because wolves aren't an issue here in North Carolina. You know, you don't really, I mean, they're so uh, long gone. They've tried to reintroduce red wolves, but even that, it's kind of not really a big issue like it is out west with the ranchers. But it was just magical being out there. I remember one day walking back after a long day of tracking, and there was this dirt road, and we hadn't seen any wolf tracks for a while. We kind of lost the trail. And somebody turned around, and they're like, oh, my God. And we all turned around. And because the light was where it was, I think it was, yeah, at our backs, we couldn't see the tracks in front of us. We were walking on a wolf trail. Uh There were wolf tracks all over the place. They had traveled that very road, but they were completely invisible until we turned around. Mm -hmm. And then they were unmistakable. And there was another area that they took us to. They called the newspaper. And it was this nice, sandy, long trail they walked us on. And it was like so many tracks. It was just one of the most interesting places I've ever tracked. Um, So, yeah, that wolf tracking expedition in Idaho, I hope they're still doing it. But that's something I highly recommend. Tracking wolves is is fascinating. Another teacher of mine is Paul Resendez. And he writes tracking, I believe it's called Tracking in the Art of Seeing. And another book called The Wild Within. Um... But I really like this guy. Um, I knew about him through his books and then heard about his school. I can't remember the name of it now, but it's in Massachusetts, Quabbin, uh, right in the Quabbin of Massachusetts. And we went up there, and uh, this guy was leading. It wasn't Paul Resendez. It was this other guy leading the group. And there was this kind of older guy. Paul Resendez, by the way, he's got a cool background. He used to be the leader of a biker gang, and he was selling (laughs) drugs and, you know, just into all kinds of really, like, biker shit. I think he went to prison. But after, you know, getting in all this trouble and everything, he decided what he wanted to spend his time doing was taking pictures of nature. And to to him, that went hand-in-hand with tracking. And tracking was sort of his, uh, you might say, salvation to another way of life, caring about a whole other thing, set of values, I guess. But anyway, so that's Paul Resendez. We're with this group and this old guy's kind of tagging along and like, you know, he just seems like one of the group. And he keeps chiming in like a little comment here and there. And, uh, you know, I'm just thinking he's a quirky guy. Like, who is this guy? And I remember he would like, we'd look at a track and, you know, he'd get all philosophical and he'd say, consider this, who is the one being tracked and who is doing the tracking? You know, he would get into all this philosophy shit. Come to find out that was Paul Resendez. And this guy's just so humble that like he doesn't even bother leading his classes. He just tags along and doesn't make a big deal of who he is or anything. You know, that's where he wants to be. Just kind of tagging along and like, you know, throwing in his two cents when he feels like it. So I loved that class, and Paul Resendez is one of my favorite tracking teachers that I've encountered. Um, it was cold when we went up there in Massachusetts, and uh, my ex-girlfriend, she went up there with me. And <laughs> I remember they had us around the dinner table, and you know we were eating, and I walked in the middle of this, middle of this conversation where she was saying, and what we don't like about Yankees down south is we think y'all are rude, because like... And I'm just, like, covering my eyes, like, oh, my God, what are you talking about? So, 
You know, they kind of made a big deal of us being from the South because everybody else was up there. But there's this one woman that I called Hawkeye, and she would always, like, as the group is walking down the trails tracking, she would go off on her own, and she would be always be the one to find cool stuff. Um, she was like a dog, the way she'd kind of, like, do this big zigzag. She'd be in, in the bushes, under the bushes, behind the trees, you know, just looking at all this stuff. And uh, I really loved her style of tracking. Um, I was so passionate about tracking at that time. I had I'd been making these two books. They were like photo albums. And I would stop when I see roadkill, and I'd put on these gloves, and I'd get tail hair, belly hair, and back hair. And I'd label them and put them in my book. Wow. So I was coming up with a hair book. I also did the same thing for feathers. So I had a feather book and a hair book I was making. So if I saw a hair on a trail, I could look up in my book and see like, oh, well, this looks not just like an eastern cottontail hair, but the belly hair of an eastern cottontail, which might indicate it was bedding down here, not just passing through. Wow. So everybody I know that gets into tracking becomes a tracking geek. I mean, it's something that you really like. It's just this endless source of clues and information and you want more but i put that out on a table and damn if the teacher's cat doesn't come and like destroy my feather book oh god and the teacher felt so bad i also had a scat collection so anytime i found poop from a new animal i would put it in a little pizza box let it dry out for a week and then spray polyurethane on it and then i put it in this like little jewelry container and uh yeah, I love taking that to classes, like when I teach kids, you know, here's the here's, here's Gumby's scat collection, and it's all these polished turds, you know, like, it turns out you can polish a turd, in fact. So, he knew I had this poop collection, and so he said, I feel so bad about this feather book. Um, the cat didn't mess with the hair book, and I noticed you don't have coyote. I've got a frozen coyote in my freezer. Do you want hair from that? And I was like, hell yeah. So I got tail, back, belly hair from the coyote. And also, he came out with this little box. It was like a jewelry box. It looked like it was a, a gauge, an engagement ring was in it or something. And he opened it up, and it was a fucking beaver turd. Now, beaver turds are hard to come by because they poop underwater. It, it was wow. the size of an egg, and it looked like it was made out of sawdust. So that went into my, my scat collection, the beaver turd. Wow. <laughs> but that was pretty cool. Oh, my God. <laughs> Yeah, and yeah, Paul Resendez, once again, I highly recommend him. What a great guy. I, I just really respect his humility and his wisdom. Richard Cleveland here in the North Carolina mountains. He used to be the head instructor of Tom Brown's Tracking Nature and Wilderness Survival School, and then he went off and started his own school, which I think he calls Earth School. But um, I took a lot of tracking classes with him, too, and I remember a few things he taught me was like, to be careful of hats with brims. He said, even just the brim of your hat can affect your awareness. So like if you have a ball cap, it's better to turn it around backwards. You want the full exposure of everything you can see and take in. Cause that little one little place that gets blocked might be the clue that would catch your eye and change the whole story you're trying to read. Mm. Um, and again, that same ex-girlfriend went with me to some of those classes there and spirit tracking is something you start hearing about in tracking circles. Um, after a while of tracking, something happens that's beyond that intellectual part of your brain. Sometimes you can see, and I've heard it described like a shimmer. I feel like I may have seen this a couple times in my life, but suddenly you can see the animal trail and it's almost a silvery shimmer. You're not looking at the tracks anymore. You're looking at something else. You might I don't want to sound too new agey, but maybe it's the energy of the animal, but there's something else that because of all this work, all this attention you've put into it, this door opens. And um, my ex-girlfriend saw this with Richard Cleveland. They both saw a spirit trail. And I was kind of jealous at the time, like, well, God damn it, I've been tracking more than her. How come I'm not seeing the spirit trail? But, you know, sure enough, they were like, they followed it and like found, what would I say, confirming clues you know, so that was something that really stood out to me about this class with Richard Cleveland. Um, and that's where I learned I had a talent for finding hair. That was before I started the hair book. And this is why I started the hair book, because when everybody else was finding footprints, over and over I'd find hair. And finally Richard was like, wow, I've never seen anybody like so good at finding hair. Every time you, you, you know, start examining a log or something, here's a squirrel hair, here's a deer hair. So I was like, well, if I've got a natural talent for this, I should develop it, hence the hair book. 
But I uh, found it kind of ironic that a bald guy is, like, really good at finding hair. <laughs> um, and another thing Richard Cleveland talked about was, you know, he said any animal can do anything. And this is something I still am not in complete agreement with Richard on. So he said, throw away these gait patterns. You know, animals tend to walk a certain way, you know, like there's diagonal walkers, which is most of us, including humans, dogs, cats, horses. You know, you got pacers who tend to move uh, both legs on the same side of their body at the same time, like bears, raccoons, for instance. He kind of dismissed all that. And I still feel like he was too quick to dismiss it. But the point he was trying to make is any animal can walk any way, just like, you know, we might change a trend. He was really wanting us to focus on individuality. Um, but to this day, I still find value in stereotypes. For instance, um, let me think of something. <laughs> well, this is relevant, but we're so, so sensitive in the human arena of stereotypes that it might be offensive, but shit, I'm going to say it anyway. <clears throat> Let's say there's a black person who likes fried chicken. If I'm going to an event with a lot of black people there, and I bring fried chicken, chances are most black people there are going to like fried chicken. I don't say this to try to, like, insult people. I like fried chicken. But the stereotype there's a, it came from somewhere, you know, because often a stereotype is generally true. In the same way, a dog will often like a bone. Not every dog will eat a bone. And that's where you get into bigotry. And this is both limits us as human beings dealing with other human beings and as a tracker. It's a blind spot. It makes you narrow-minded instead of the open-minded you want to be. So to me, I really believe in noticing trends noticing stereotypes. For instance, I don't know why it is, a lot of Asians can't fucking drive. Oh my god. I don't know why, but I would be I'd be a liar to tell you that I don't see a horrible driver a lot and notice that it's an Asian driving the car. I don't know why it is. It doesn't make them inferior to me. I'm not trying to shame anybody. And I mean god, let's not even it would be a whole podcast and we have done this podcast on all the shit white people do, the trends that tend to to go with white people. You get into trouble when you won't let the individual break out of that. When you insist that, no, because you're in this group, this is what you do. So anyway, this all ties back to Richard Cleveland for me, because that got me thinking from a tracker's point of view of the appropriateness of stereotypes, trends. And that's where I fall on that. See them, but don't be limited by them, because the individual can, in fact, do anything. Hmm. And this goes for any race of people, and it also goes for any animal. Um, another teacher, and I can't remember the names of these instructors, but they're with White Pine Nature Institute in Maine. Um, I went on a lynx tracking expedition with them, and that was really fascinating. I'll always remember this one Canadian student that was, like, really into tracking, and he actually somehow got the urine of different animals and soaked them in cotton balls and put them in a little vial, and he would carry that with him. So when he came to a scent post, Whoa. he could smell it and then take out his little vial and compare it and say, definitively, that's a bobcat. Like urine perfume samples. Yeah. Oh, my God. Oh, and that reminds me of something I forgot to say about Paul Resendez. One of my other favorite days with Paul is he took us out in the snow, and he had a sniff scent post, like where a red fox had peed and where a gray fox had peed. Huh. The gray fox was, like, mustier, more skunky. The red fox was sharper. And, you know, cat pee had its own scent. But anyway, he would he would have a sniff this. And damn if he didn't take us out one day and have a sniff the wind when he caught the whiff of urine and said, okay, which way's the wind blowing? <laughs> now, what what would you describe that smell as? Is it sharp? Is it musty? Does it smell like a skunk? What's your guess? <laughs> and so we had a little conversation about what we thought it was. We smelled it. And he said, well, let's go find out. So Paul takes us out there. And damn if it wasn't, like, I think it was a red fox that time. We found the clues. We found the footprints of not just a fox, a red fox. Wow. That was magical to not just track, but track by my nose like a dog. I'll always remember that. That was awesome. And, yeah, with the white pine in Maine, um, it was so cold up there. The, the water would freeze in my beard. Um 
And I remember they dug out this track. You know, we're tracking Lynx, so that it was a Lynx track. And they dug out an area right beside where the track is, and he would, the instructor would hold his hand there and make the track glow by reflecting the sunlight off the snow. And suddenly it's like the tracks, because he dug out that little area beside the track, he could bounce the light off, and the track would actually light up like a freaking light bulb. Whoa. And this is the kind of geekiness I'm talking about with trackers. <laughs> like, this is the kind of shit trackers love to do. They love to play with all the fine details, because even though it's just kind of a nifty thing, you know, to show people then, that could actually be a technique that could bring out the details of knowing a piece of information about a track later. Um and another thing I remember about that class is the snowshoe hare. In a lot of indigenous stories, and Bugs Bunny is a remembrance of this character. Bugs Bunny the trickster, always tricking the bad guy, always, you know, outsmarting Elmer Fudd, Yosemite Sam, whoever. That goes back to native lore of the rabbit being the trickster. And part of the trickery was shape-shifting. The rabbit could disguise himself. Now, when you're tracking snowshoe hare up north, it's amazing because depending on like how fast they're moving, what they're doing, their paws will open up and suddenly it looks like a wolf track. Their oh. paws will close and it looks like a rabbit track again. Sometimes they'll change their gait pattern and it's like it looks more like a lynx track. So we were fooled by the snowshoe hare tracks more than any other animal. And, you know, suddenly I've got this window into like, Wow, the deeper wisdom of the trickery of the rabbit, you know, these native stories, you know, when they talk about, it's not just an arbitrary, like, oh, rabbit is the trickster. They are remembering a valuable tracking piece of information in that story. Rabbit is, in fact, in his tracks, a shapeshifter. You know, every time I hear something like that, it makes me think of that movie Idiocracy, the only movie that's become a documentary, right? Because mm-hmm. because I didn't know that about Bugs Bunny. And I mean, I'm not saying that's why they did it, but just to think about how much we've lost and take for granted just for, you know, just in this example about the, the hare, the rabbit being a trickster. Who would have thought? Mm-hmm. And we're coming towards the end of our time, so... Uh... You know, I want to get into more detail about how to track. I just wanted to share some stories about some of my teachers and, you know, my opinions about tracking for this one. But uh, be looking for Native Literacy Elders. And uh, for that episode, I don't know when we're going to do it, but I want to really share some information on how to track. But one more teacher I wanted to share that taught me uh, about tracking was Rob Spiden. And uh, I don't know how to pronounce his name. S-P-E-I-D-E-N. Um but I took an orienteering course with him in the Virginia mountains and it was this epic, like miles long orienteering course. Like we had to get compass bearings and measure it out and follow it. And it would take us all over, like across railroad tracks, up mountains to find this one clue, a little piece of paper. It was that specific. You know, if you weren't exact, you would miss the clue and that clue would tell you where to go to the next clue. But in the process of this awesome orienteering course, he taught me some things about tracking. And um, just added to my knowledge. And, you know, one of the things I love about all my teachers about tracking is their enthusiasm. So I guess to make sure that I share, um, you know, some of this before I run out of time is, you know, some of the the movies I think of that kind of inspire me about tracking is like Thunderheart with Val Kilmer. You know, you've got, I can't remember his name. Is it Graham Greene? I don't know. But he's like the, the Indian, I think he's a cop. In that, and he's talking about pressure releases, you know, like you can tell how much change Val Kilmer has in his pocket. You got The Hunted, which is actually Tom Brown Jr. helped with that movie, so there's some really good tracking stuff in the, the movie The Hunted with Tommy Lee Jones. Um, and even TV shows, you know, I love Lost, you know, that was on the air. And you got John Locke and even uh, Kate. There were two characters that knew how to track in that. Um, and tracking was a really big part, you know, the ability to track was a huge strength in that show, and even Walking Dead, you know, heartthrob Daryl, you know, and constantly tracking, you know. So I find these characters valuable because I think it's really good to have inspiring role models that make us want to track. And a few resources to pass along to get you started if you want to learn more about tracking. Um, 
Peterson Field Guide to Animal Tracks is really recommended by a lot of people. I actually have not found a lot of use for that. Um, I just want to pass it along because it is so recommended. I do find more use for Peterson Field Guide to Mammals because if you're going to start tracking, um, and footprints are a good place to start, it's really good to know the behavior of these animals, what they eat, do they hibernate, things like that, because this can be your evidence that either confirms or disputes your theory. So you look at a clue, count the toes, look at the claws, look at the walking pattern, look at where you're at, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You get a theory, you know, like I think this might be a coyote running two days ago to a water source um, going this direction, coming from that grove, feeling uh, impatient, you know? All these I love questions. how you can <laughs> identify how the coyote's feeling. Well, who, what, when, where, why, how. These are uh, going to be my guides for my next tracking episode mm. to get into the details of how to track. But, you know, that's why I mentioned that information specifically because it gives me the, the things I'm looking for. Um, but it's just a theory until you find more clues. you got to confirm the theory or find things that dispute the theory and come up with another possible theory and see which one holds the most water. That's the detective work. That's the whole thrill of tracking for me. Um, so, yeah, Peterson Field Guide to Mammals. Anything by Mark Elbrock. This guy is the last word on tracking. He's done a book on mammal tracks. He's done a book on bird tracks. And he's done a book on skulls. And these are big books. They're not field guides. You don't want to take them out with your backpack. You want to, like, go home and research, you know, like make some notes and then look at those books. But they are incredible. Those are my favorite things if I if I have a place, like a desk, to look stuff up. Um, my favorite field guide to take in the field with me is Stokes' Guide to Tracking and Animal Tracking and Behavior. I love that because it's not just footprints, it's signs. They've got little sections on scratches on trees, holes, you know, like um, how to tell what lives in what hole, things like that. And what you find, unless you're in a really sandy place or a really snowy place, um, is you've got to sign track a lot. Skulls and Bones, I think one of the authors of that is Searfrost, but that, that really backs up some of your tracking. How do you um, spell that? Searfrost, S-E-A-R-F-R-O-S-S. And I could be wrong about that, but the, the name of the book is Skulls and Bones. A tracking book. Yeah. So, you know, you start tracking and uh, before long you're going to come across like a skull or a bone. And that, that gives you a big insight into not just who it is. That's just one question, identification, but how the animal lives. You know, skulls have all kinds of clues. Tracking skulls is a, a science in itself. Oh, that one time just recently when I uh, went to take crap in the woods and I found, I saw this skeleton, skeletal remains, and uh, I told Gumby about it. And I haven't read this book or even really looked anything up about it, but I determined it was probably a cat. And you were asking, like, what position it was in, whether or not it had maybe died of natural causes or mm. it had been eaten by something. So that was pretty cool, just going to take a crap in the woods. Yeah, and that came from Mark Elbrock, um, reading kill sites. I learned more about kill sites from his books than anywhere else. Like, if the animal's died of natural causes or has been killed, you know, like, are its legs straight or curled up? Um, very often, an animal that dies of natural causes goes to sleep, curls up, whereas an animal that was killed is often fights or was drug, has straight legs, things like that, you know, little clues. Rob Spiden, who I just spelled his name, uh, he wrote a book called Foundations, and uh, he talks about sign cutting. It's more the search and rescue aspect of tracking, which is really interesting. Um, a different take that just broadens your, uh, your view of tracking. Tom Brown Jr., uh, I don't feel find his books so usable with the tracking as much as <clears throat> some of the exercises in them which I'll talk about in another episode, but there's a lot of good exercises and philosophies that are interesting in Tom's books. And to expand it, remember, everything is a track. I'm talking a lot about footprints here, but uh, that's just the beginning. So Peterson Field Guide to Forests and Reading the Forested Landscape by Tom Wessels both help you start tracking everything, tracking the forest itself. Um, Golden Guide to Weather, that really helped me track um, understanding the weather more because this really 
influences the animals and also helps you, especially with aging, knowing when the animal was there. Weather plays a huge part in that. And finally, once again, Paul Verzendez. Wild Within is a book that's just stories that draws parallels, especially from his biker days. He talks about that and then what he's learned through tracking. And just over and over, there's a lot of interesting parallels of the way people act. For instance, one of the things he talked about that I thought was really cool is how he noticed that people will tend to leave graffiti like uh, Gumby was here in bathrooms, bathroom stalls, and on overpasses, places we use the bathroom, places we travel. And he said he's noticed the same trend in animals, particularly predators, coyotes, wolves. <laughs> they will leave scent posts where they poop on their paths where they travel. So just things like that, you know, is really interesting reading that book. And Teresa, are there any like last things we're coming to the end of our time here that you want to uh, throw in there about tracking or anything? I'll just add briefly that if you're if you've listened to this episode and you're kind of like, I don't know, that sounds like a lot of work. I would encourage you on your next walk outside just to notice, try to notice something about your surroundings on your walk. For example, if I notice that there's like some grass that's been tamped down, that might be a trail. That might be where an animal beds down for the night. And who knows, maybe there's like a hole nearby that an animal's also using that bigger track or that bigger trail, like an animal superhighway, and you might start to notice other things. And it's not so much that uh, you'll understand the story, but your eyes will start to open up. Mm-hmm. And even, I'll, I'll just throw in there, middens, because I had no idea what a midden was, and I don't think I even really noticed it on all of my hiking um, before I met Gumby, but middens are squirrels favorite place to dine. Mm -hmm. It's usually a stump of a tree and you'll often find little bits of whatever they've eaten, whatever nuts they've had. And so things like that, you start to go, Oh my God, that's a midden. Oh my God. This is where, you know, an animal might've slept last night or whatever, or, Oh my God, I just saw a snake skin in the driveway. I wonder what kind of snake that was. And so you don't have to be all technical at first, but just to start opening your eyes. Maybe you see a feather. Maybe you see, I don't know, uh, the remnants of a nest or something. So it's just really cool to to go from there and then start to get into more of who, what, when, where, why, how. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I would say tracking can be a lot of work. I mean, indeed, you know, you get to a point where it is going to be a lot of work, but... Um, You know, I think of this class that I was teaching, tracking. It was an adult class, and about six people signed up for it. And uh, at the end of the first class, oh, horror of horrors, um, I gave them homework. (laughs) And it wasn't a little bit of homework either. It was was like substantial, like stuff that they had to do. And um, only one person did it. Like, I think at least one person immediately dropped out when they found out there was homework. But these were people like... You know, there were six classes because each class was going to be based on one of the, what I'm going to call the elders of tracking. Who, what, when, where, why, how. Um, And, you know, I was so frustrated. I was like, what the hell did they expect? I was just going to give them some little magic pill that they were going to come for like two hours, like for six weekends and like know how to track. It's demeaning to the art and science of tracking. It does take work. It takes dedication. But it's so worth it. Don't you want to learn to inhabit your life, to be awake to the miracles around you? There are stories everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something I didn't get into this episode, but uh, next next episode on tracking, you know, just you don't have to go somewhere to track. You pick any patch of ground and, you know, you first think the problem is finding tracks. The very next problem is there's too goddamn many tracks. <laughs> trying to make sense of all the freaking clues. Tracks are everywhere. So that's one of the first challenges you encounter is trying to like follow one line of tracks. So just keep that in mind. It's worth it. And, uh, you know, some of you may be unemployed, recently unemployed or still self-quarantining. Um, but my God, what a rewarding thing to get outside and start realizing like, um, I remember this one neighborhood in New Jersey that it would just look like a you know, it was in New Jersey for Christ's sake. And it was like a little like suburban neighborhood. And we were with Tom and damn if he didn't point out bear tracks, black bear tracks, a place I would have never dreamed black bears are. 
Um, and he says this is normal. You know, animals know what we see are foolish animals. We see unusual things. But the, the animals that get a little age on them, get a little wisdom, we never see them. They're walking through your yard all the time. And the tracker can find those clues. And it is it is magical. I can't think of another thing I've done in my life that's been more rewarding than tracking. Mm. Um, all right. Anything else, Teresa? Um, no, I know we're... We're running long past our hour, so I think I'll just save my little gems for the, the next time we talk about tracking. All right. So for our um, listener write-in, we have Brian from Portland, Oregon. Brian! And he listened to The Fire People, and he wrote, that This was a fantastic episode. What a great story. <laughs> and I think he's referring to Rainbow Crow. And again, you know, there's indigenous stories. Um, so many of them have roots and tracking. You know, like, they sound so much different when you start studying nature and, and tracking. Um, there's so much wisdom hidden and folded in these stories. Um, but yeah, I really enjoyed Rainbow Crow. And I, uh, we talk about stories and we hope to bring more stories into our podcast. Because I think whatever's going to happen next, and again, taking it back to Daniel Quinn, he talks about people are enacting a story. Um, if you enact a story in which you are the lords of the world and you are at war with the world, sooner or later, the world is going to lay dying at your feet. But if you enact a story where we are just a member among many living on this world, sharing its beauty, its wonders, its miracles, then that will be your reality. We need to to realize these stories. We need to explore these stories and we need to start telling these stories. Um, so that's one of the things I find tracking helps me with. Not by itself, but in addition to other tools. Awareness, waking up, seeing, looking, questioning. This is tracking. So um, if you have any questions or comments, please write us. You can find us at www.escapingsociety, one word, lowercase, .weebly.com. We also have a Facebook page. Um, under that name, Escaping Society. And yeah, we would uh, love to hear from more people. Um, so I, I have got to assume some of the things we say either provoke thought or <laughs> offend people. So yeah, just take a minute out of your day and send us something, some word of encouragement, some challenge, something that's just like counterpoint. Um, we really benefit a lot from that. And I feel like we all benefit a lot from that. Um, by that sharing of communication. And God knows with all this quarantine and crap, we've got time. So uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to our song it's not very good and it went kind of long don't care if you like it cause we'll be gone over that next horizon we ain't got no address